Hello and welcome to We Need to Talk About Movies Podcast. I'm Trev and this week we need to talk about Steven Spielberg. Now again I'm on my own and I will be including reviews and footage used from my old YouTube channel so I apologise in advance for any uh, quality issues that might arrive. So this podcast goes live on YouTube on our Hag Films channel before it goes live everywhere else. So if you want to comment or discover any of the links to videos or books mentioned in any of these podcasts, then please check us out at Hag Films, which is all one word. And it's the We Need to Talk About Movies podcast playlist at the top of the page. Subscribe, give us a like, and yeah, you can stay tuned there for the debut of each podcast. I wanted to talk about Spielberg because I've just watched the definitive Spielberg HBO documentary. I'm 41 years old. I've grew up through the 80s. Spielberg was a massive influence on my taste in films growing up. Films like Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Indiana Jones, E.T. So in this series, we are going to talk about Spielberg's career, film by film. As I mentioned, this is from videos that I used to do on YouTube. I'd done a definitive Spielberg series then just sort of reached the 1990s the mid 90s I think early 90s and I only actually got up to Schindler's List I think was the last film I'd done but it would be a pretty long podcast if we was to go through the entire back catalogue of Spielberg films all in one hit so for now this episode we'll just look at his films from the 70s I mean Spielberg has made a lot of films and we almost forget all of the films that he has made you know he's made massive films as we've mentioned Jaws Close Encounters Indiana Jones Jurassic Park Ready Player One I quite enjoyed it's a lot different than the book and I know a lot of the fans of the book sort of don't like it but I enjoy it and I've watched it with the family and we've the the kids love it it's great to watch a film that you can enjoy with your children but like most Spielberg films it's got a certain amount of sentiment sort of stuck to it which sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't he's also made some sort of quiet and obscure films like the color purple with Whoopi goldberg uh, always with richard dreyfus the terminal with tom hanks and he's made world war ii films such as empire of the sun saving private ryan as well as sprawling historical epics such as Amistad Lincoln Bridge of Spies Munich and important historical films such as Schindler's List but that being said he isn't infallible he does often make mistakes films such as Hook for example 1941 there's so many strings to his bows He's even backed so many movies as Amblin Productions. Films like Back to the Future, Gremlins. He's a co-founder of DreamWorks, pushing the boundaries of innovative digital filmmaking. So what I'm going to do now, I'm going to play my review of Spielberg's Duel, and then we'll discuss that afterwards. The 1970s. A decade of cinematic revolution. An army of young filmmakers stormed the decaying studios to liberate the cinema from their extravagant and over-budget period epics. 
and speak out to a generation of young audience who never usually got a mention at the cinema. Names like Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, George Lucas fought to produce films throughout the decade that would speak to unsung members of the American people, a nation of anti-war, anti-establishment demonstrators and free love enthusiasts, the remnants of a swinging 60s. They wanted gritty movies that reflected their anger and grief with the Vietnam War, the distrust of the government after Nixon and Watergate. However, unknown to the studios themselves, there was a lone soldier within their city walls, their own twenty-something scruff, a filmmaker with a little more love and respect for the old system. Steven Spielberg had waltzed right in, and through his work on various television programmes, he managed to secure himself a deal to direct a number of TV movies for Universal. Whether he knew it or not, he was going to revolutionise the studios from the inside. His first feature was Duel, based on a short story by writer Richard Matheson, who also wrote the screenplay. It was a story with one main character, hardly any dialogue, and miles of dusty road. Oh, and not forgetting, a menacing, rust-coloured truck. Its protagonist was David Mann, Dennis Weaver, a salesman driving across the Californian desert in his Plymouth Valiant. It's not long before he meets a truck that slows his journey. For a while they harmlessly overtake each other, but when the unknown truck driver waves man past him and into an oncoming vehicle, the game suddenly becomes a tense and dangerous fight for survival. Spielberg, being unusually young to have been offered this opportunity, picked it up and ran with it. The first great decision he made was to film every last shot of this adventure out there, on location, on the highway. Surprisingly, the studio executives warned him that it would be both costly and time-consuming to film on the road and recommended that the director should use rear projections for certain inserts. Spielberg opted for the road and plotted out his entire movie on storyboards alongside a giant wall-sized map of the journey. As David Mann, Weaver is well cast. He's a gawky, bespectacled man, weak-looking and weak in spirit too from what his phone conversation with his wife tells us. He has no heroic qualities. He could just as likely be you or I. Subsequently, we feel his fear. It becomes his journey to find the strength to face up to this monster, a journey that similar characters will have to take in future Spielberg films. Spielberg's clever use of filming against moving backgrounds such as a rock face or embankment allowed him to simulate breakneck speeds whilst actually barely moving. Not showing the driver's face enabled the truck itself to become a mindless monster as opposed to a manned vehicle, therefore creating a heightened sense of doom. The shots of the truck plunging in slow motion down a cliff face and shrouded in a cloud of red dust is almost the very same shot that he chose for the demise of the great white shark that would terrorise Amity Island in four years' time. To accompany both farewell shots, the director also included the roar of the T-Rex from the 1925 movie The Lost World. As above the debris, both man and Brody manically celebrate the relief of their survival and evidence of how close they came to their fear-induced insanity, or how close they were to devolving back to primitive savages. Jewel was such a success that the studio allowed Spielberg to add additional footage to bring the picture up to a runtime that would allow it to be released theatrically, and it received a great response, particularly in Europe. As a product of the 70s, the movie displayed effective on-location footage, fine editing and a steady pace, with Hitchcock's suspense. 
As the debut feature for one of cinema's most accomplished directors, Jewel remains as near-perfect and timeless as it did on its release, and a great taster of the delights yet to be produced from this infant in an industry full of old men. Strangely enough, Spielberg would make movies which would play a great part in ending his friend's assault on the studios. Films like Jaws, Close Encounters, E.T. would once again place the power of filmmaking back into the hands of the studios where they would maximise budget and profit. Only a handful of his friends would make it through the battle. Once again in Hollywood, it was money and scale that would make it to the screen. During the 60s, all the studios started to hemorrhage money, making these massive high-budget films that no one was going to watch. And I think films such as Cleopatra was the final nail in the coffin. Then you had the emergence of all the young filmmakers, films like Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider, making these gritty, stark, violent films that all of a sudden were you know, made on a tiny budget but generating huge amounts of income at the box office taking the studio execs by surprise they didn't have a clue what they were doing and where they were going wrong with these bigger pictures all of a sudden the power was put into the hands of the young filmmakers a lot of this is documented really well in a, a book called easy riders raging bull by peter biskind there is an accompanying dvd of it as well narrated by richard dreyfus which is really interesting um, and it sort of documents Sort of the rise and fall of, as Peter Biskin calls them, the sex, drugs and rock and roll era. Um, but as I mentioned in here, Spielberg was sort of the quieter one. You know, he was, he loved studio films. He'd grown up on these films. George Lucas, the same. They loved the big budget extravaganzas. Films that they found awe-inspiring as children. And they sort of went against the grain of all their other mates. And eventually, yeah, they would save the studio system. And basically, as I mentioned, put the power back in the hands of the studios. So Jewel was made for the telly. And Spielberg chose to film it on the road, as opposed to using sort of projected images in a backlot. And it adds to the realism. It also adds to the sort of difficulty out on set. But it's taking these risks that make Spielberg's films so realistic. Uh, Jewel, as I said, was made for TV, but it went on to become such a successful film that they ended up adding an extra 20 minutes to it to give it a theatrical release in Europe. And it became a big hit, and it gave Spielberg the confidence, the experience, but also the studio backing to go on to produce his next film, his first feature film, which was The Sugarland Express starring Goldie Horn. So here's a review of that. The Sugarland Express. A 1974 movie starred 70s flavour of the decade Goldie Horn and the lesser known William Averton, who never usually gets a leading role, and is very often typecast as a bastard, as in Ghostbusters and the Die Hard films. It's refreshing to see him in such a role, and he carries it well. It's yet another road movie from the young director. This time, the pursuit is not that of a killer truck, but that of a convoy of police cars hot in pursuit of the couple who have taken patrolman hostage in his own car. They're both petty criminals whose daughter has been taken into care, 
Atherton, as the dim-witted Clovis Poplin, is broken out of a low-security detention centre by his strong-willed wife, Lou Jean, played with excellent vivacity by the beautiful Goldie Horn. Even though their hearts are in the right place and the welfare of their child is at the forefront of their escapade, they are both naive in believing that in the end it will be alright as they dig themselves deeper and deeper into a sticky and dangerous situation. They are pursued by frustrated Captain Tanner, played with hardened conviction by veteran actor Ben Johnson. The characters are playful and childlike in their naivety. Another character trait that many of the central characters of Spielberg's films to come will include. Look at Scheider as Brody in Jaws or Dreyfus as Neary in Close Encounters. Clovis here is completely thrust through the story by his strong-willed wife. She is the one who makes all the rash decisions. She is the one that smuggles him easily out of the prison. She is the one that throws the policeman's gun to her husband. He's the nervous and doubting one, who whilst aiming the gun at the policeman nervously declares, What do we do? The policeman, Max Slide, their hostage, also gets propelled into their adventure, and as they make their way across the country he becomes as famous as they do in the eyes of the public. By the end of their adventure they have developed a friendship despite their difference in class and morality, another theme that will pop up again and again in Spielberg's movies. The movie's themes and criminally orientated main characters are typical of the 70s and the new generation of filmmakers who were busy turning Hollywood on its head. But Spielberg, unlike many of his peers, makes a movie that is more accessible to a wider audience by cutting out the violence and language that was used in similar films like Badlands and Bonnie and Clyde. The story is exciting and based on a true story, but unlike Jewel, there is a great deal of comic relief amongst the tension. Spielberg has a keen eye for capturing realistic humour in moments of great struggle. The movie definitely feels like a Spielberg movie from the outset, more so than Jewel. A lot of the shots, the off-centre framing of the roads, low-angle shots of the white picket fence houses, could be placed seamlessly into the opening scenes of Jaws as we first glimpse Amity Island. There is also the use of the reverse zoom dolly that the director often uses. Here it is subtle, but nonetheless effective as the snipers ready their guns through a window frame and focus on the road in which Clovis and Lou Jean are set to enter in the movie's final scenes. So his first official feature, and with hundreds of extras and police vehicles under his control, it was an ambitious movie for certain, but one that he made look easy. Zanuck Brown, the producers behind Jaws, were also holding the purse strings here, and entrusted Spielberg with the colossal production. He used editor Werner Fields, who had worked with him on Jaws, and cinematographer Vilmos Sigmund, who he would use for the impressive closing counters, to accomplish an enjoyable and visually pleasing adventure. Sadly, it's his lesser-known movie, but one that I think is a solid and great film. If you haven't seen it already, then take the time to look for it. It's always good to know where these classic directors come from. So, that was The Sugarland Express. As I mentioned, it is one of his lesser-known films. Now, I think it flopped at the time, but there was other films out as I mentioned in there, Badlands. I think it came out sort of similar sort of time, and I think Badlands got a bit more critical acclaim. But Badlands, I don't know if you've ever seen Terence Malick's Badlands with uh, Sissy Spacek and Martin Sheen, but that's more of a thoughtful and, well, it's a Terence Malick film, isn't it? That's his debut film as well, and it's very sort of cerebral, a more of a cerebral movie than... Sugarland Express, which is just great fun, but although it wasn't a a huge success, it was a great film. 
it did have good production values it did get a lot of critical acclaim and it did prove to Zanuck Brown that Spielberg had it in him to control a large production and it must have sort of helped them decide that he was going to be the right director for his next feature Jules Spielberg's third theatrical release was the impeccable monster flick Jaws, starring Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss. Throughout my childhood it was my favourite film of all time, and the movie from which my keen interest of film had spawned. This is horror at its rawest level. Not only is its monster a very real monster, but also Spielberg pulled out all the stops to ensure that this movie shocked. The daylight mutilation of the young boy is one of the goriest deaths on scene, and to occur within the first 20 minutes, it sent out a strong message. Even children are not safe. This could get really scary. Severed limbs, severed heads and fountains of blood, Jaws was the original gore film, but one that the censors left relatively in one piece, and was marketed at a family audience. A lot of our younger viewers will not necessarily buy into the believability of the dated rubber shark, but a lot of my generation and those a little older than myself will agree that Jaws is a classic. It has gore, it has suspense, it has excitement, action, humour and a bank of quotable lines and an amazing soundtrack by John Williams. It was virtually the first summer blockbuster, smashing all box office records, making the young Spielberg a household name and establishing him one of the greatest directors of the time. Based on the best-selling but nonetheless trashy novel by Peter Benchley, Spielberg's vision cut out the corny sex and crime stories that padded out the novel, and he decided, much to Benchley's annoyance, that the story should be streamlined and follow the more down-to-earth and personal plight of our hero, police chief Martin Brody, who is caught between a rock and a hard place as he battles the narrow-minded islanders and the shark that threatens their welfare. The screenplay by Benchley was pretty much discarded, and Spielberg brought in writer Carl Gottlieb, seen in the movie as the island's photographer Meadows, to help finish the project. Gottlieb also wrote The Jaws Log, an on-location journal he kept and a benchmark of filmmaking literature. The novel's author Benchley can also be seen in the film as a reporter on the 4th of July. Against studio pressure to cast A-list stars in the role, Spielberg decided that his cast should be actors, relatively unknown, that will give the characters a more realistic feel, and tap into the fear that this could happen to you. And some great casting decisions were made. Brody here is that everyman, and like David Mann in Jewel and Clovis Poplin in the Sugarland Express, he is no hero, and definitely not without flaws. Bespectacled, an outsider in an important job in the community, and a childlike fear of the ocean, Brody is the most unlikely hero yet, and the French Connection's Roy Scheider is perfect in the role. His personal neurosis and clumsiness holds him at a safe distance from the typical all-guts-and-glory heroes you would usually follow in film. To think the studio wanted Charlton Heston. Richard Dreyfus too as the oceanographer Matt Hooper is also another typical Spielberg character whose sense of adventure, wry wit and face pulling also plays as a child in a man's body. He seems to get on well with Brody for the most part but he completely clashes with the next major character. Quint, played by Robert Shaw, is very much the Captain Ahab of the story. A wise old sea dog whose life experiences range from the wild antics of a man at sea to his chilling recital of the Indianapolis tragedy. 
Shaw was an ideal choice for this role and brought a larger-than-life presence that belittles all those around him. This character was strongly based on a local at Martha's Vineyard where they filmed the movie, and one who made it into the movie is another old sea dog, Ben Gardner. The companionship and bickering of this unusual crew make for solid entertainment when in the final act we follow them out into the ocean to confront the shark. It's mainly Hooper and Quint battling for supremacy of knowledge and experience and Brodie tagging along for the riders, much a hindrance as a help. The scene in which the men are comparing scars sums this up beautifully and you see Brodie checking his appendix scar and deciding not to join in. The island's mayor, played by Murray Hamilton, is also perfectly cast. He is the almost naive and ignorant face of the politics of a post-Nixon and Watergate era. He has that smarmy politician-come-car-salesman quality about him, a politician whose career was probably more for the self-righteousness than the welfare of his voters. Another genius stroke for Spielberg was to use as many locals and residents of Martha's Vineyard to pad out the background of his movie. This gives us a natural, human-looking society, and again echoes the fact that this isn't happening to movie stars, this is a real horror occurring in a real town. It's also worth bearing in mind that the beach scenes of the 4th of July were filmed during the winter seasons, and these extras toughed it out for the movie. The star of the film, Spielberg had said, was not to be the actors, but the shark, Bruce. How wrong he was. Named after Spielberg's lawyer, and also known as the turd and the cock, Bruce the shark's failure during the production almost lost Spielberg his career, but became his saving grace. With no shark to film, the actors and co-writer Gottlieb would have days and days to waste, and they would get together and improvise scenes, thus bringing to life characters whose real-life personalities and interactions were coming through on the screen. It was another factor that added to a great sense of reality. The scarcity of the shark also meant that other methods were to be created to simulate horror and tension. By producing a camera that can be housed in an airtight box, the camera could swim the oceans and we become the shark, and it was probably what made Jaws such a truly frightening film. The power of suggestion knocking socks off the ready-to-date rubber shark that was used. The shark may look fake, but I think for the time, and for the majority of the shots it's used in, it is pretty impressive. The shot where the man in the rowing boat is taken under is a great one, and incidentally the first time we finally see the shark. The film uses shots of the rubber shark spliced with real-life shark footage caught by Australian filmmakers Ron and Valerie Taylor. The scene in which Hooper was to be attacked by the shark was to be filmed by them with a dwarf in a tiny cage to give the appearance of this gigantic Hollywood-sized 25-foot shark. But when the small cage was lowered in and destroyed in front of their eyes by a great white, it was no surprise that the dwarf declined from the role. But another great thing that makes Jaws so realistic is the small moments of interaction between Brody and his family. A poignant moment where Brody's youngest son, Sean, mimics his dad, for instance. And then there's the way that the background is always alive with noise and confusion, as if the characters are all going about their own daily lives. Brody usually in amongst it, but at the same time a million miles away. Lines are spoken over each other, heard but hardly noticed. The soundtrack by the legendary John Williams was also superb. Apart from its eerie and mechanical main theme pounding along like the swish of the shark's tail, the soundtrack offers some of the finest sound to accompany the human adventure. The music that plays when the holiday season erupts, or when the cage is prepared are highlights, alongside the great exciting seafaring sound of the various chases out at sea. William's score never fails to match the pace of Werner Schill's high-paced editing, or Spielberg's excellent choice of shots, or of the pastel canvas for Bill Butler's cinematography. Nor does it ever give anything away before the right moment, keeping every jump and shot concealed from us until deemed appropriate. It's a perfect accompaniment. 
Having said that, Spielberg opted to keep the music out of the false alarm scene with the kids and the cardboard fin. The film's finale may be a tad convenient with the shooting of the gas cylinder, but as Spielberg says, if you've got the audience hooked for two hours, they'll believe anything you show in the last two minutes. It certainly made for a better ending than the book, where the shark just basically dies of indigestion as it's about to eat Brody. The film's ending here echoes the death of the truck in Jewel. As the shark sinks into a cloud of blood, it lets out the same roar as the truck does as it sinks into a cloud of dust. The roar of the T-Rex from the 1925 film, The Lost World. Spielberg has made some cracking films in the past, but to me this is his greatest achievement. The movie bowls me over every time. A great cast, a great atmosphere, a great human tale, and with one of the most effective reverse zoom dollies ever to appear in film. That whole scene is filmed to perfection with the effective editing cutting between a distant Brody and his point of view, using walking bathers in the foreground to hide the splice. The biggest flaw with the film, apart from the rubber shark and the fantasy ending, is the fact that it spawned three sequels. Films like Jaws and Lucas's Star Wars movie gave the power of the cinema back to the studios, and once again, films were dictated by how much money could be generated. Replica films and the sequel era was upon us. When we were kids, we used to play Jaws in the garden. And what we had, we had this boat. It's a little sort of fibreglass boat that we found behind some garages. Probably gone round there to smash bottles or something like that. And overgrown in all this hedge was this blue and white little fibreglass boat. But you'd pull it out and when you tipped it up, it had a dorsal fin and a tail fin. It, and it looked just like a shark. Blue on the top and then white a white rim around it we were made up this was our own personal shark that we could play with so we dragged it home and it just lived in our front garden for god knows how many years and jaws has always been a massive part of my life even in my later years as i sort of quote bits of jaws all the time in my day-to-day life and then one day i was working a new chap had come to work and i quoted one of these lines and then he just turned around and said to me, that was not a bowling accident. He, he instantly recognised the line from Jaws and that was it. Together we just quoted Jaws, we watched Jaws, we watched the making of Jaws, talked about Jaws. If ever we went out for a drive in the car, we'd listen to the Jaws soundtrack. And it just sort of reignited this obsession I had with Jaws, which was crazy. And then in 2019, at the in the summer of 2019, they re-released Jaws at the cinemas and... Uh, I phoned up my mate and said, what are you up to on Thursday night? And he's, oh, we've got this really important dinner. We're going around to my missus's parents' house for dinner. I was like, oh, because uh, Jaws is on at the cinema. And he's like, yep, I'll be there. So all those years later, we managed to watch Jaws at the cinema on the big screen. which is That was bucket list stuff for me. It was a really amazing experience to see this film that I've always watched and always loved and there it is once again on the big screen it was almost like watching it for the first time then I came home that night and uh, stuck the DVD on and watched it again <laughs> also remember when I was when I was 15 or in 1995 yes I would have been about 14 15 and it was released once again the 20th anniversary edition back then wow but they released the widescreen video and I remember watching the widescreen video and all I'd ever seen is the TV 
sized square format before and watching it on widescreen was like watching a, a whole new film there was a whole half of the screen that you'd never seen that was the first film I remember watching in widescreen I think and then I got the Star Wars films and then I just became obsessed with widescreen so yeah Jaws became the first summer blockbuster and it's no surprise but what is surprising is and it's still surprising to this day is that it got that PG-13 rating you know over in the UK this was a PG film and you can see people watching it now who've never seen Jaws before there's reaction videos on YouTube of people who are absolutely horrified by this film it is really quite gory and violent for the certificate that it got so I don't know how man- how Spielberg managed it if it was a 15 would I have seen it as a child possibly not but it was on prime time on TV everyone was watching it but equally as loved back when I was a child was his next film which Spielberg said was his most personal film to date and I think it's the first film in which he explores the broken family the absent father that becomes apparent throughout his movies over the next foreseeable future it goes into a bit more detail in the HBO documentary that his father and his mother separated and he always sort of blamed his father but you see in this film the first reflection of that so it's a personal film but it's still a Spielberg film and it's still a huge production a mind-blowing blockbuster a sci-fi epic to continue the success of star wars that george lucas had in the same year and it's one of my favorites still to this day one of my favorite spielberg films it's close encounters of the third kind spielberg's fourth feature was by far his most adventurous movie yet and being his own story is most personal too. It was a special effects extravaganza with 2001 A Space Odyssey's Douglas Trimble as visual effects supervisor and Joe Alves, who had worked with Spielberg on Jaws, being the production designer. And with such dazzling, groundbreaking effects, what an accomplishment this movie really is. Released in the same year as Lucas's Star Wars, 1977 could probably be called the year that the future arrived, certainly in film. We were seeing special effects that still to this day hold up to the test of time. The effects here are groundbreaking and apart from the aurora scene in Jaws, this movie marks the beginning of Spielberg's fascination with the use of light and smoke. In fact a lot of Spielberg's signature styles are captured here together for the first time, with themes, characters and motifs that he will put in nearly every film he creates in the future, but we'll be touching on that a little later. Close Encounters tells the story of Roy Neary, played by Richard Dreyfuss, a character typical of a Spielberg lead role. The Peter Pan, a child in a man's body. Neary's house is full of toys and clutter, and despite the fact that he has three children, we also get the idea that he plays with these toys just as much as they do. A perfect example of a man who hasn't quite gotten over his childhood. It would be hard to imagine Steve McQueen in the lead role, which was who Spielberg first approached, but Dreyfus was in love with the role from its early stages as discussed on the set of Jaws, and never let up on Spielberg until finally, and quite rightfully, he got the role. In the movie he lets his family leave him and follows his heart on a very personal adventure which is something Spielberg said he would have changed had the film been made 20 years later after becoming a father himself. We also meet young single mother Gillian, a typical Spielberg woman, played by Melinda Dillon, 
and her young son Barry. She's not too unlike Lou Jean in Sugarland Express, another strong-willed blonde mother on an adventurous journey for a lost child. She's not too unlike Elliot's mother in E.T. either. And neither is Barry a far stretch from Elliot for that matter, as he shows no apparent fear for these alien visitors. The innocence of childhood certainly a theme that Spielberg will use a lot. The child, a three-year-old boy by the name of Carrie Guffey, is wondrous in this role, and was nicknamed One Take Carrie on the set. There aren't many filmmakers who can successfully create as much horror and fear in family movies as Spielberg can, and the abduction of young Barry is one of those terrifying scenes that haunts you for hours after viewing. With the glaring light and smoke bursting from every nook and cranny, and the ghostly unwinding of the screws, a shot Spielberg added later for extra tension in the scene. For added realism during the shot, Melinda wasn't told that the kitchen was going to erupt, so every reaction was virtually lived. The toys in Barry's room that come to life, and also the clouds spilling through the sky are a precursor to Poltergeist, which Spielberg would later go on to write, for Texas Chainsaw Massacre's Tobe Hooper to direct. Although the alien visits are the high points of the film, and they only appear three times, the movie never gets dull, nor does it lose its pace between those awaited scenes. Spielberg finds numerous ways to keep us glued to the screen. The government agency, headed by Lacombe, played by legendary French director Francois Truffaut, globe trots to find ships and planes left in the desert, missing for years and returned in immaculate condition. Then there's the mystery of the image left within the minds of all those who witnessed the visits, and this in turn brings about Roy's rapid decline into insanity, as the answers and confirmation that he seeks continues to evade him. And let's not forget John Williams' amazing score, and of course his five-note signature tune, How Could We? Once heard, it could never leave your head. As in Jaws, and to a lesser extent Sugarland Express, is once again the officials of the story, here the government and military, who are very much the villains. They're deceitful, plotting around the people, creating a cover-up in the guise of a chemical spillage that clears the whole state once they are informed of where this intergalactic meeting will take place, shielding the truth from the public in a web of fabricated lies. However, Lacombe and his faithful interpreter Laughlin, Bob Balaman, are cast against this type, and are very much the two good guys in amongst the villains. They sympathise with the likes of Neary and Gillian. Balaban would go on to write and publish an on-set diary, which would become a great and insightful view into the monotony and marvel of the big-budget filmmaking, and a personal and very often funny account of his relationship with Truffaut and Spielberg. Devil's Tower is where the mothership chooses to make contact, and what a location. It serves as a tremendous backdrop and landing platform for the colossal spacecraft, a fantastic image for the characters to be trying to sculpt or paint as they battle to recognise its form. It also sits like a huge rectangle on the otherwise sparse and arid landscape. It puts me in mind of the monolith in Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, and in many ways it represents the same thing. The dawning and realisation of a new time. Production designer Joe Alves was so proud of his reconstruction of the Devil's Tower set that he waited and waited for Truffaut to comment on its immensity. He never did. However, when they built a replica motel room to film the scene where Gillian sees Devil's Tower on the TV, the French director's eyes lit up and he said, Now this is a set. The movie's finale sees the visitors arrive the immense mothership dwarfing the colossal Devil's Tower as the aliens and the humans have an interstellar jamming session, lights and music the key factors in communication. You can hear the Jaws theme as the music comes to a close, and also the effects designers stuck a little R2-D2 onto the mothership as way of a salute to the other great sci-fi movie of the year. As I mentioned earlier, this is the first place that a lot of his trademark motifs come into play. 
I've already mentioned smoke and lights, but it's also the first time we realise his obsession with the Second World War, as we see the missing planes turn up in prime condition. The director also uses the colour yellow when signalling peril or danger. Here, it's near his truck in the great scene where UFO scans its light over him. He uses yellow in jaws to signify danger too. The barrels, as well as Alex Kipner's inflatable raft, and also the vehicles in Jurassic Park spring to mind. Pinocchio is not only mentioned here, but also becomes a subtle theme of the movie. Neri's wish upon a star is not to become a real boy, but to be enlightened with the truth and answers that so cruelly evade him. Williams also adds the wish upon a star tune to his score, as Neri approaches the mothership. Spielberg will later revisit this theme, albeit in a greater depth, in AI. Various editions have been released to this film at one point or another. The collector's edition that I now own seems to be a good version. The original special edition took us inside the mothership, but chose to drop the scenes of Neary tearing up his neighbourhood and hurling flora and fauna through his own windows to build a giant model within his house. I found the special edition to sag somewhat in the middle due to the deletion of these comical scenes. It seemed too serious and overlong. Close Encounters is a fantastic movie, and a fantastic Spielberg movie too. In my opinion, if he should have won Best Director for the first time at any point in his career, I feel that it should have been with this triumphant accomplishment. It merges horror with excitement, adventure and humour, yet its optimistic, feel-good and universal theme of embracing the unknown rather than fearing it brings it down to a more spiritual and socially acceptable level. As Jaws sparked a childhood obsession with sharks and the ocean, so Close Encounters done exactly the same with UFOs. There's many different versions of it. I recently watched it on Netflix, but I don't know what version it was, but it seemed a real chopped up version with lines referring to bits that had been cut out and it just none of it made sense and it didn't it didn't flow that well. I've always found that the best version is the collector's edition which I think has some of the special edition ending, as well as extended scenes of Neary with his family, and the scene where he's going mad and creating the Devil's Tower in his kitchen out of bits from his garden. There's a great diary, uh, published diary, on location of Closing Counters of the Third Kind by Bob Balaman, who plays Francois Truffaut's right-hand man. Um, it's really witty, it's really insightful... Just a really great reflection of life on the set. I'll put links to all of the books and DVDs, films mentioned that I can in the video description on our YouTube channel, Hag Films, all one word. So please, if you're listening to this on podcast, check over there should you be interested. You can't talk about Spielberg's films without talking about his partnership with John Williams whose amazing scores just help to amplify the tension and sort of bring a whole new life to the films. And I think one of my favourite scores is The Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There's some really beautiful music throughout this film, none more so than the, the end credits with the spaceship flying off and The Close Encounters theme. Those five notes blasting away in this beautiful symphony it's it's one of my highlights of John Williams' music in Spielberg's films so Close Encounters of the Third Kind was Spielberg's fourth and it was as if the bloke could not do any wrong that was until 1979 
with the release of a film penned by Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale, who would later go on to write and direct the amazing Back to the Future. But this first partnership with Spielberg wasn't going to be the success that they'd all hoped for. By 1979, Spielberg was the golden bulls of Hollywood, the youngster that had managed to save the studios and to get the public back into the cinemas again, and in record-breaking numbers too. He had made Jaws and Closing Counters of the Third Kind, two of the most popular and successful films of the decade, generating money never before seen and virtually inventing the summer blockbuster. There was nothing that he couldn't do, or so it seemed. When John Milius produced a script from writer duo Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis, who, as we know, would later go on to become the creators of the Back to the Future films, Spielberg leapt at the chance to make it. His first all-out slapstick comedy, and best of all for him, it was about a topic that he was very interested in, namely the Second World War, with a lot of focus on the Air Force. That's pretty much the only common thread of Spielberg themes that exist in this picture. The story combines fact with fiction, and is a culmination of wartime stories from the paranoid home front shortly after the Japanese invasion of Pearl Harbor, lampooned here for the sake of this incredible tale. The critics of the time were waiting for Spielberg to fail, and this movie gave them the opportunity to pounce on him and knock him down a peg or two. 1941 opens very well, with a stylish nod to the opening of Jaws. Chrissy Watkins taking a naked moonlight swim, almost shot for shot identical to the opening of his 1975 monster pick, even using the same actress to reprise a role. But here, the something in the water is not a great white shark, but the rising periscope of a Japanese submarine on which she becomes impaled. No greater laugh have we had in a Spielberg movie to date, and unfortunately no greater laugh will we have in this film either. The comedy for the most part is predictable and lame, a mix of ridiculous slapstick, accidental destruction and lewd innuendos. I'm sure that during the conception of the many ideas and even during the movie's production, much fun was had, but by the time it reached the screen there was more mayhem than comedy, and its numerous characters and plots and subplots became a confused and tangled tapestry of frustration amidst a high volume of explosions and inane shouting. Comedy doesn't date well as it is, but I can't help but feel that even back in 1979, audiences had seen it all before. Don't get me wrong, 1941 isn't a bad film at all. Its production values are excellent, as are some of its numerous set pieces, and also various comedy performances from its giant cast. Highlights would definitely be the cartoon-like antics of John Belushi's Wild Bill Kelso, Dan Aykroyd as the fast-talking Sergeant Frank Tree, and Slim Pickens as the foul-mouthed Southerner Hollis P. Wood. But then these are characters designed for these performers, and the same as they have played time and time again. Unfortunately, the dialogue and gags just weren't there for them. John Wayne was approached for the role of General Stilwell, and said after reading the script that he deemed it anti-American and warned Spielberg not to make it. The role went to Robert Stack, and would be one of his first ventures into the self-parody of his gritty career, his next and possibly most notable being his performance as Rex Kramer in The Hilarious Airplane. Also in the cast, as well as the reprisal of George Chrissy Watkins, we also see two other members of Spielberg's shark film, Lorraine Gary as the house-proud wife to the bespectacled Ned Beatty, whose house is slowly but surely demolished as the army leave a huge gun in their yard, and also we see Murray Hamilton as a hype-fearing civilian on lookout upon a ferris wheel with his annoying ventriloquist cohort. John Candy is also in the movie, yet his role is hardly notable. And until I'd watched it again recently, I'd forgotten that legendary British actor Christopher Lee also appears as the Nazi. As I mentioned, there's some great scenes, and scenes that easily demonstrate the magic of Spielberg's direction, as well as the Jaws homage, 
the dance-come-farcical chase scene that precedes the riots are superbly shot and choreographed, with Treat Williams as the angry stretch chasing the movie's hero, Wally, through the busy dance hall. The scene puts me in mind of the incredible opening scene at the start of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Also, the special effects here are faultless. The miniatures of the planes flying through the city are incredible, but as for key Spielberg characters and themes, they are either absent or unidentifiable. Decisio's Wally is almost the usual unlikely hero that we see in Spielberg's movie, closer to Clovis Poplin than Brody or Neary, but his character's arc is ridiculous and not very believable as he leads the crew of a tank into battle. He's just another cog in a farcical motor. There are, however, many shots that are apparent in all his movies, and John Williams once again provides the score, this time a little less fantastic and a little more patriotic, but still completely fitting, as usual, to the movie. The film was a modest success at the box office, and Spielberg says it taught him many valuable lessons in filmmaking, the most notable being that he is invincible behind the camera. He can fall, he can fail, he is only human. Now, 1941 had all these elements that you'd have thought would have made the film an astounding hit, but it just was a miss. Even as a child, I found it confusing, and I never. it was one of those Spielberg films that we had on tape, but I didn't really watch a lot. But, I mean, you had Dan Aykroyd in here, John Belushi, who were also favourites of ours. You know, we used to watch Blues Brothers all the time when we were kids. But I recently watched Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale's early films, Used Cars and I Want to Hold Your Hand, both of which were sort of produced by Spielberg. And I can see the the writing in both of those films was sort of, as I said in this review of 1941, lewd, slapstick. They were cheap laughs. And sort of those films for me having watched them recently for the first time, they didn't hit the mark. I mean, they certainly honed their skills with the Back to the Future script. I mean, that script is impeccable. It's just a shame they couldn't do it for 1941. 1941, as we said, wasn't a great hit. It wasn't a commercial hit. It wasn't a critical hit. It was Spielberg's first dud, which doesn't make him a bad filmmaker, I mean, everyone needs to make mistakes to learn, surely. You know, we learn by our mistakes. And certainly, as we leave the 70s into the 80s, Spielberg will reclaim his place as a fantastic director of blockbusters. But he's also going to fight against that title and start reaching out with some more artistic films. I think the cynic in me always used to think that he was chasing the Oscar. Maybe he was. Maybe he was trying to prove himself to his friends. Maybe he was trying to prove himself to himself. He does mention in the HBO documentary that when he got with his wife, Kate Capshaw, on the set of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, his outlook on life did change. And his values in the films that he chose to direct shifted greatly and we see that in the next decade so please stay tuned for another edition of this series uh please subscribe share this podcast wherever you can and uh yeah stay tuned for more of the spielberg series plus much more of the 
film chat with myself and Nathan. And uh, yeah, if you check us out on Hag Films on YouTube as well, subscribe over there. You can always drop a comment there and your feedback may feature in future episodes. Thanks very much. Cheers. Cheers.